Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I am your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. We also have a 10-minute complimentary consultation if you're struggling with the transition onto telehealth during this period. So please reach out if you do need some help. And I'm here with the lovely Bronnie Lennox Thompson. Every single comment of hers is gold. So I'm really keen to dive into some of the, the topics today, which is centered around acceptance and commitment therapy, which is ACT. So really keen to see how we can upskill in the concepts of ACT when dealing with uh, working with people experiencing pain. So Bronnie, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. What a wonderful opportunity. It's always really good to be able to talk about my favorite thing, which is pain. Well, pain's not really my favorite thing, but it's the thing I talk a lot about. I'm a nerd. You know? We love it. And we, we love it. Thank you so much. Um, so first of all, the, and the question I ask everyone on the podcast, what is your story? My story? Um, how I got into pain or how I got doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Um, let's, let's go with the, yeah, wherever you'd like to take it. Yep. Okay. So I am an occupation therapist by training. And I did my um, early training back in the 80s, so early 80s, so I feel old. Um, and I have worked in pain management oh, most of my career. Um, I started by doing vocational management in the late 80s, and that was not a thing in New Zealand. We didn't have any services. Um, and I was able to say, hey, I can actually walk into a workplace and look at what people actually do and help them do more or different um, and then I noticed that most of the people that I was seeing had persistent pain as their main problem and so I kind of went to the dark side and I learned about pain and it's kind of swallowed me up and I love it um, so I went on and did my master's in psychology um, at University of Canterbury and that gave me a lot more um, research tools and sort of conceptual tools to understand pain as a, a multi-dimensional um, experience. And then I did my PhD looking at um, people who live well with pain and what, how do they do it? What's the process? And I thought that it was going to be a set of coping strategies, you know, the good ones that everybody ought to do, um, but it's not. <laughs> It wasn't as simple as that. And so it became much more about a process and probably not surprisingly, it's about relationships and it's about um, occupation. So the things that people do that have meaning and value in their life. Um, so my, in my other, my other life, I'm a senior lecturer and the program, um, I guess, director for our postgrad programs in pain and pain management at the University of Otago. Awesome. Yeah. So both the educator role and the and the clinician role at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I also I live with fibromyalgia, so I'm I'm one of those people. Um, but I always have to add that I di didn't get into pain because of my pain. Um, I just happened to. I just really found it fascinating. I thought it was the most interesting area of work, and one that really we need more. So I thought I'd learn about it. It's a fascinating area to tap into person-centered practice and all the biopsychosocial elements of it. So 
Definitely. Yep. So mm -hmm. I wanted to, to ask and dive into acceptance and commitment therapy. So what are some, some of the concepts uh, that would be most relevant for allied health professionals in the musculoskeletal and the pain space when it comes to helping people? Wow. ACT um, is fascinating. It's a really interesting approach to living rather than to pathology or to illness. It's about the way that we live. And the idea behind it is that we need to develop this idea of psychological flexibility. That means that we can respond to what happens around us in a way that honours um, what's important to us, our values, and helps us get unhooked from the way that our mind will play tricks on us. And so that's, you know, in a nutshell, it's about showing up to what happens rather than trying to defend against it or stick with old um, strategies. It's about opening up and being willing to experience things that are difficult, like being stuck inside if you're not in a if you're not an um, introvert and you need to mix and mingle with people, um, it's about that. And it's also really about taking action. So doing things in life that take you along the route of what you value and you know how you want to be as a person. Um, so it's a, what they call a third way, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So it builds on behavioral treatments um, from Skinner and from, um, well, in pain, from Fordyce, really, looking at um, the way that pain behaviours and thoughts and beliefs can hook us into being unwell um, and the way that people around us respond to what we do. So that's the first part. And then it looks a lot at um, thoughts and language and the way that we learn concepts. Um, and I haven't really hooked into the language part until probably earlier this year um, because as an OT, I don't really do talky stuff. We do do stuff, we're doing. Um, but, but if we think about what stops us from doing something different or new or, or novel, 99 times out of 100, it's something that our mind will tell us, like, oh! <gasps> you can't do that, that's out of scope. Or um, I'm too dumb to know that stuff. Or people like you don't do this. So those sorts of thoughts and beliefs that pop into our mind and, um, and trip us up really, stop us from thinking that we could try something different. Um, so ACT is really about being able to notice where we are at the moment and what we're doing and what's going on in our bodies and our minds and, and around us and then choosing to take action that will lead us in the direction of what we value in our life in a nutshell <laughs> awesome and it's it's great that the concepts can be used both by us as clinicians and also for our patients and you mentioned the the unhooking um element would that be under the diffusion elements of being able to separate ourselves from, from uh, the, the thoughts and work with them and make space for them? And how would you use that concept of diffusion um, in, in clinical practice? So the, the one that we usually encounter is somebody who believes that the pain that they have represents damage. 
there's something broken in me. There's some tissue that hasn't healed properly. Therefore, I can't do things. Um, so that's a really good example of a of a um, an unhelpful belief that is helpful initially, but as time goes on, it gets less and less helpful, and yet the pain feels the same. So diffusion is about noticing that's where our mind is telling us. Minds are all about solving problems. And when we have a problem that can't be solved, like life, or I've got this pain and it's not following the rules, um, we, if we can stand back from that and just notice that it's an opinion of our mind, that, that thought or what our mind is telling us, it's just a, it's one opinion um, based on past experience, sure, but, and probably what other people have told us as well. But noticing that that's just uh, an option. We can choose to follow that, that thought and obey it, or we could choose to do another, take another um, action. There are lots of ways to defuse. Um, probably the simplest one is just to stop for a moment and notice that we're thinking and we've got this mind that's telling us stuff and giving us feelings, emotions as well. And then being able to say, in this moment, what will my next best step be? that's going to take me closer to being who I want to be, to taking actions in the direction of my values. Um, and I use it a lot with people. I use a thing called choice point, which I just love. So choice point says, in this moment, what's actually happening in the here and now? So if we think about a person who's got pain and they get this belief that... Um, if I do this, oh, my pain's going to go up and then I'm probably not going to sleep very well tonight and then I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be cranky as everything and then everybody around me is going to wear it. In this moment, we have a choice. We have a choice to listen to that mind that tells us you're going to get pain and I'm going to make you pay. Or we could choose to do something, take action, that takes us one tiny nudge closer to what's important. So let's take an example. Um, somebody's at home, they're under lockdown, they are in New Zealand anyway, and they're feeling sore and cranky, and they could decide, I'm just going to stay on the couch all day. And right now I'm sore, but I'm just going to stay, because if I move, it's going to hurt, and then I'm not going to sleep. But at the same time, They've also got this sense, because of the time that we're talking about, dinner time, that um, I want to be a good partner. I want to be somebody who's a good parent. And so in this moment, I have a choice. I can sit on the couch and be cranky and hurt, or I can do something in this moment that means that I'm taking a little step towards being the kind of family member that I want to be. So one thing that I could do, even if I'm sore, is I've got a kid handy. Come on, kid, let's just sit down and we'll have a chat and let, I'll read you a story. It's not like going out and playing ball or, you know, the rough and tumble that, that blokes generally like to do with their kids. It's true. I don't know, it might just be Kiwi blokes. It's not just Kiwi blokes. Um, but it'll be... Um, it's something that this person in this moment can do. And it means that there are lots, for thinking about the value of being a, being a good dad for a, for a good bloke, 
you know, what, is, what does a good dad actually look like? Well, good dads do lots of things. They don't just play rough and tumble with the kids. They're also, good dads will tuck their kids in at night time, give them a kiss and cuddle before bedtime. They might help with um, making the lunch. So they might stand beside the kid and the kid will make some, make some um, sandwiches and dad can help and they can do it together. Or they might um, read story together. Or they might be out in the garage um, tottering about with manly stuff in the garage and the kid can come along too. Instead of thinking that there's only one way to be it. So the idea of flexibility is that if we listen to the stereotype ideas in our head about what a good dad looks like, and we think, oh, but I'm sore, I can't do that anymore. For lots of blokes, not just blokes, but others as well, that's like the end of their um, ability to be a really good father. And that is terribly demoralizing for, for people. And um, I've had, you know, groups of men in my, um, the group work that I do, just talk about the loss of sense of respect, of mana, of feeling like they're okay. Um, they feel a loss of um, intimacy and relationships. And that's enormous because to them, being a dad is really, really important. But this pain is getting in the way. And the thought is, fixed thought is, I'm just, to be a dad, you've got to play rough and tumble. And that's all. So ACT is sort of inviting people to be a little bit subversive and fool your mind into recognising that there are a whole lot of different ways that we can be really good dads without having to do just that one approach. There's lots of different ways of doing it. So we can still hold on to the kind of identities we want to form in the future, like the type of people we want to be or that our clients can do that and yep. in a more of a flexible way versus a very fixed uh, mindset where there's only one way to be a good dad or there's only yep. one way to do my job. So having that ability to, to take a step back and be aware of the thoughts and the presence. And that's, yep. is that when you would use that choice point to get them back centered into that present moment or? Um, well, I, I link it in some, being present is the idea of mindfulness, and that's just that non-judgmental standing back and just noticing. It's like a bird's eye view, I suppose, of what's happening in this here and now. So say somebody is fearful of bending forward, they're probably not in the moment. They're probably remembering what happened in the past, and they're probably anticipating what might happen in the future. They're not actually noticing what is happening in the here and now. So if I can help them, notice what is going on right now they might be surprised to find that they're not actually sore and i think that that noticing is something that all therapists who help people do things physios ot's psychologists chiropractors osteopaths exercise physiologists whoever when we're helping somebody do something we can just say hold on a moment just let's notice what is happening notice the sensations in your body and notice that your mind is probably having a little chatter to you about, oh, this could be really scary, you could hurt yourself, or, oh, the last time you did that, that was really bad, you don't want to do that again. And actually just stop the 
notice those thoughts, hold them there. Thanks, mind. Thanks for your opinion. But I want to notice what my body is doing now. And then you can choose. So I use the mindfulness throughout the day as a training mechanism for helping people stop to notice because it's really easy to live in the future or the past and not as easy to live in the moment. So that might be every time you wait for the jug to boil to make your coffee, let's just notice, let's just stand there and notice or notice the sensation as we pick up the teaspoon with the instant coffee in it and we put it in the cup and then we pour it. You know, just noticing the sensory stuff in that moment. And the cool thing about that is you can do that again and again and again through the day. Little momentary ones. It's not sitting there going on and holding it. You can, and it's good practice to do that because that teaches the skill of maintaining focus and it helps to disengage the mind from the judgment part and bring it back to just noticing the sensations and that's a good practice for us all so that's mindfulness is one part of um of the hexaflex i'll have to show you a picture of that <laughs> yes uh, we'll probably we can link it in the um in the post it's it's really useful to see how the the concept of psychological flexibility uh, is with all the different components so the we mentioned that bringing the attention back to the the present and the the whole use of mindfulness practices so we so it sounds like you are able to to tell the clients to guide them to stop and actually notice five senses so what they're feeling what they what they are thinking as well so there's a bit of metacognition and then working with those rather than trying to fight the the thoughts away one of the big distinctions between the traditional cognitive behavioral approach, particularly the cognitive therapy part and ACT, is that in ACT we don't tackle the content. We just know that our mind is a really good chatterbox and it will chatter away to us, telling us things that it's heard in the past or things it's read and judgments about everything. And that where cognitive therapy says, so that's that's an unhelpful thought. Let's check out whether it's accurate or not. Now, in the case of people with pain, very often those thoughts are accurate. They know that the last time I bent over, it hurt. So that is not an inaccurate thought. It's that it is not helping me in this moment to do something I need to do. So disputing a thought or challenging or reframing thoughts is something that we don't do in ACT. We just notice that that's something that the mind says and then we take the moment to choose what our next step, our next action will be. And the, that important, the important part about the actions is that they are aligned with our values. So we spend a long time trying to work out what is actually important in this person's life. Um, who is important in their life? What, what kind of a person do they want to be? And from that, we start to understand things like um, somebody who really wants value and um, wants balance in their life. Somebody who really wants fitness in their life. Somebody who likes competition. And at, from that, we can then find lots of different ways to express those values that don't necessarily knock us right up in front of our pain. So we can be a lot more flexible. Awesome. So it's finding out that the deeper, more meaningful goals behind the, 
just pain reduction. So like why they want pain reduction and what would they be doing so functionally? But I, I, yeah. I do imagine you would have, and we would encounter um, perhaps from the fault of our marketing and promotions, I would say people that come in just for purely uh, a pain focused or pain reduction goal. So what would be your kind of way to navigate that uh, very much pain focused, symptom focused goal? I, I guess my starting point is always to find out what they think is going on. What's your theory? And why, why does this bother you so much? Um, a lot more moving on from there about um, if pain was less of a problem for you, what would you be doing? So I'm not saying I'm going to take your pain away, but if it wasn't such a problem, if it didn't sort of smack you between the eyeballs, what would you want to be doing? And it's like, um, it's like magic, really. You can watch a person's face change as they tell you about the things they love to do. And then I want to understand, what is it about that that you love? Why do you love that so much? So one of my, um, in my PhD, I had a chap who really loved his rugby. It's, you know, Kiwi bloke, our mate. <laughs> and for him, rugby was just like, that's where he met his, his mates. It was his social circle. It was his um, place to keep fit. It was a place where he met people who could help him and vice versa, where he could help others. So it was all that comradeship. Um, so we worked out from that, well, what else, you know, how else could you get that comradeship? The thing about values and act is that they're not a goal. So, for example, being a really good parent is something that if you've got kids, most of us want to be good parents or just good enough parents. You can't kind of tick it off the list and say, right, being a good parent now, I can go and be a wicked parent. You can't do that. You continually act as a good parent right until your children are, um, you know, well and truly off your hands. So my daughter's moved to Auckland and she's learning about um, being independent in lockdown in Auckland. And so she's contacted me. She said, oh, what was it? How, where do you keep your toilet brush so that it stays clean? I know, adulting in its finest. Well, in a, in a container with toilet cleaner. Oh, I didn't know that. So I'm still acting as a parent but it's a different form of parenting. And I guess that's the thing that, one of the delightful things about ACT is that no matter what is important to you, there are a whole range of different ways that you can do it. Um, even if you're, you know, tetraplegic, you can still be the kind of person that you want to be. Most of our patients have got pain, so, you know, what kind of person do they want to be? How do they want to be in the world? And how can we help them get there? Awesome. And there is that initial perhaps loss and grief that people need to deal with if they are unable to at least immediately see themselves as doing what yep. they want to do. And, and they've already identified themselves as, as having that pain and that pain is in the way of what, of what is meaningful to them. So that's a really great yep. way to gradually, um, I guess, empathize and deal with the, the sense of loss and still know flexibly with the um, um, ACT concepts that they can still do what they value. Yeah. With the people who are feeling angry, sad, I just make some room for them to have those feelings in the room. 
So it's okay if somebody cries. Um, I have a big box of tissues <laughs> that I always have um, so that we can make some room to be sad. It is sad. So we don't have to pretend that we're happy, happy and, and everything. We can be, um, as clinicians, honest and open and willing to be human with the people. We don't have to have all the answers. We can say, hey, I'm, I'm stuck. I wouldn't know what to do if I was in your your boat let's have a look at what what it's like for you let's make some room to be sad and then move in after that to and what would help you take one step towards being the kind of person you want to be i think those um i think the fact that act isn't a therapy that's done to people and it's not about people who are ill or unwell it's just about humans being human means that as clinicians, if we use ACT for ourselves, we can be much more vulnerable and transparent with the people that we're working with, which has an unbelievable unfolding with the person. Because suddenly they see that you're, yes, you've got lots of ideas and you can help them, but you're also willing to be with them and not try and put yourself one up. And we do that inadvertently. It's what we've been trained to do but it's really off-putting to patients. Awesome. And, it's, and it, I think the great thing is that we can make room for these emotions without feeling as though we need to fix them or feeling as though we need to act yeah. a certain way. We can just let them be. And yeah. it's normalising the human condition, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Awesome. I like that part about that. Um, we can both be at sea and not sure what the next step is and let's just make some room to be like that for now um, and it's about how we do it in a way that honours that person's situation um, and also honours our own need to sometimes stop and take stock before we start jumping in and trying to do things. Um, I think we get feel like we need to, like we have to um, because we're the, we're the therapist and that is incredibly hard work for us as clinicians and if we can recognize that what we are being is flexible and we can respond on the fly to things that the person brings up what what I know is that we're not being psychotherapists at that point and we're not going to step into scope of practice stuff we're just being two people we're using this framework this way of looking at the world and being human with one another and that, I think, is liberating, hugely liberating. Takes the pressure off us as well. We're, yeah. we're the coaches, the guiders, not the, you know, the all-knowing authority figures that need to yeah. know exactly what to do to deal with this person crying in front of us right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I like the fact that we can have, like, I invite people to experiment. Let's have a play with that. Let's see what happens so that the person's always in charge of how much or how little they do, um, I ask them what do they think might be their next step. So I drag in some motivational interviewing, um, phraseology. But it's really, for this person, what would help them feel more like themselves and less like this caricature of, um, you know, a pain patient. And that, that refers to self as context. So this is another facet of the hexaflex, is the idea that self as context looks at 
me and my progress and what's important to me rather than comparing me against how I used to be before I had pain or the next person who, um, you know, or mum or dad or, you know, a sibling or, or a partner. We use ourselves and what's important to us as our, um, as our um, context. So we're comparing ourselves against ourselves. Am I a better person today than I was yesterday? Am I taking another step closer to being the kind of person I want today? And all the time knowing that I can have another go, I can have another choice point in this moment. It's just lovely. That's, that's beautiful. That's such an awesome way to, to practice. And um, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a, a few kind of paradigm shifts with, with the concept. So, so another, mm. another concept as well that I wanted to touch on was the, the idea of creative hopelessness. And perhaps that idea is a little bit uh, different to what some therapists have been used to when it comes to, you know, we like to challenge and fix beliefs, just like we've moved on from fixing movement, but now we want to fix their beliefs. So yeah. how can we use that, the concept of creative hopelessness, but perhaps what is it first and how can we use that in practice? So if we think about the people that we're working with, I don't think people deliberately get up in the morning and make, make a decision in their mind I'm going to do something really dumb today I'm going to make a complete stuff up of today and so most people will do their best by making the best decisions they can in that moment with the information that they've got and so if we think about people who have persistent pain they're also making the best decisions for what they do based on what they know and what they've experienced so we can in terms of um, creative helplessness what I do is creative hopelessness sorry not helplessness um, I say so let's have a look at all the things that you've tried you know you've tried exercise you've tried um, surgery you've tried all of these medications you've tried this you've tried that and we have a look at the good and the not so good about each of them so what's good about medications well they can help but what's not so good well I can feel really foggy and you know my head gets all foggy with it with exercise I can do my exercises perfectly hold my core and oh I've still got pain um and my point of walking through these things that people have tried is to help them realize they have done all the things that they are meant to have done and it is not their fault it's not for want of trying it's not because they're malingering or because they're just pathetic or they're weak it is actually there isn't an answer to this problem of pain um, and even if there is in the future right now this person it hasn't worked for them that's why they come to see us so creative hopelessness is about recognizing that all the things that we do are well and good in the right place in the right time the ways to solve the problem but when they don't work or if they don't work it doesn't mean the end you can still do different stuff that might not be about eliminating pain it's about making life and you bigger and so I, I, use, um, I use the Chinese finger trap example. So Chinese finger trap, you put, I get them to put their fingers in the end of each of this, this trap and then get out of it. And you will always have one that will break the thing. 
They'll just rip, rip it and shred it and it's going to die. Um, and then you'll have somebody who tries and tries and tries and tries, gets stuck and gets really angry and a bit frustrated and perhaps a bit scared because they're trapped. And then you'll find another person will have pushed their fingers in a bit and they've done a little bit of wiggling. And they found that, oh, I can actually get one out. And that means I can get the other one out. And I just let the group do it, because I usually do this in a group. And then say, what did you notice? And what they will generally come up with is that the harder you try and fix this problem, get out of this trap, the harder it grips you, the worse it becomes, the more frustrating. And I have this saying that how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you tend to be somebody who rips shit and bust and you, you shred the finger trap, you probably do that with most things in life. You go full at it, wholehearted, all energy, all guns blazing, and things fall apart. And sometimes it works. You do get out of it, but you also shred everything around you. Um, some people will say they get quite scared doing it. Well, that's likely that when you feel trapped, you also feel quite scared. Some people will do the pushing in and they'll say, well, if I go into it a little bit and I just do these little wiggles, then I can get out. I wonder if that's a lot like pain. Instead of fighting against it, I go into my pain. I make some room for it. And then I have these little shifts, little things that I can do that help me get out. And I point out in the group that there's no single perfect way. And even the little shifts, the little things that we do, it's a whole series of little shifts. And that's pain management. Um, and yeah, if there's a miracle cure, that's fantastic. It'll come along. It hasn't yet. In the meantime, can you make these little shifts so you can get out of the trap and start living? I also use um, Tamar Pincus' um, Play-Doh example. So you have your two colours and you put your two colours together and the longer I do this in the group as well and I get them to mash the colours up until they're completely submerged and that's for how long, you know, they keep massaging the ball together to make this murky look colour. That's as long as their pain has been. So we give them, you know, it's been five years, we'll give you five minutes to mash this. If it's been 10, you get 10. You just keep doing it. And then we say, okay, so I'm not the same colour. I'm not me anymore. This pain has got all submerged all through me. So how can I be me again? And then we have to add in the original colour. And we're never the same colour that we were at the beginning with those with the Play-Doh, which is that we're always changed by our experiences, always. And that's not always a bad thing. But if we want to get more like ourselves, we're going to have to add some more of ourselves into it. And that's where I start to say, so what makes your life worth living? What is, what's missing? Are you having fun? What do you do for catching up with your mates? How are you a good dad? All of those sorts of things. And that gets people excited about this alternative way. That's so awesome that we're giving them the narrative that we're not, you know, taking away what they have already or trying to fix what they have. We're just adding on. So it's the yes and concept adding on what they value yeah and i like the fact that when i'm doing this with patients i will get them to tell me what they're experiencing what they're thinking so that it's not about me giving a, a story to them but of them of us working through an experience together and they make sense of 
what's going on in light of their pain themselves, which is a lot more, it's like, it's all metaphor is about bridging between something that we know about and something we don't know about. And this acts as a really nice guided metaphor. Um, and we can use that in lots of different ways in act. We talk about, you know, if you're stuck in the bottom of a hole and all you've got is a, is a shovel, do you keep digging? No. Well, how would you get out of a hole with just a shovel? And, you know, so we get people thinking, what could I do? Oh, I could put cut some little footholds and get out, maybe. Or could I keep digging and, you know, dig a staircase out? There are loads of different creative ways that people will come up that they start to say, oh, I'm not as stuck as I thought I was. There are ways that I can still be me, which is that, really cool. And that concept is done through the experiential learning that you do versus the yep. kind of the educating <laughs> at them kind of thing. Yep. So, and I, and I wonder is, is there, when it comes to experiential learning, one of the, the concepts with exposure therapy and behavior therapy is, um, expectancy violation it's become a bit of a, a buzzword in in recent times yep. <laughs> yeah. so um yeah. you would number one never ever say the word violation to a patient number two how would you how would you kind of um use the concept of if you do use the concept of expectancy violation to to um enhance the the learning effect when it comes to these um, experiments i don't really call it that i call them little experiments I wonder if we could try this. Let's make it, um, you know, if you wanted to try, and I actually, what I found is I, I do do graded exposure for pain, um, for avoidance. Not for pain, don't care about pain particularly. Um, I care about doing. And so with graded exposure, I'll use the photographs and we'll generate a hierarchy of um, activities that people do and then we'll begin at the lowest one and we'll do it. With um, with ACT, it's more around what are the committed actions I am, this person is willing to do in the pursuit of these important things. And what I've found is that um, people are, they surprise me by choosing quite, um, quite advanced goals, things that, you know, actions that I wouldn't have chosen myself. But they'll say, well, I'd like to go for a 20-minute walk with my child. That's great. Let's try it. Let's have an experiment. And then we come back at the end of that and how did it go? What did you learn? What went well? What didn't go so well? What would you do differently next time? So that it's much more um, the person's own experiences that we're drawing on. And my job is to help them reflect on various parts of that experience and and pull the dots together and say, well, you know, does anything occur to you after having tried this out that might help you the next time? You know, now, now that we've had a talk through what you did and what you didn't do, what would you do differently? Um, how does this fit with your, your idea that you can't go for a walk? Oh, well, actually, I can. So, yeah, it starts to challenge those in a, in a nice, gentle way. Yeah, so you're not kind of um, attacking or... or trying to directly challenge their, their cognition or their belief or their perception of what, what they, or the reasons behind their pain, you're saying, let's, let's try something. Let's, out of curiosity, what, and let's ref, then reflect what happens 
with that? What can we learn from that? A really good example. I had a chap who had been, he had back pain and he'd been um, really struggling with a job where he needed to pick up boxes and stow them and um, it was a store, store type job. And so I just said, well, let's, let's have a go. Let's show me how you do it. And what I noticed was how much he held his body really, really rigidly. He really did not relax one single thing that he could. Um, and I just said, I wonder what would happen if you just let go and breathed out as you bent forward. And, you know, we just, just go as far as you feel comfortable. Oh, let's have a go. Had a go and he just realised that he didn't need to brace. And what he said, but every physio who's told me that I need to have, you know, I've got this weak core and I've really got to strengthen it. The, the really interesting thing was that he pointed out that he's not sore. In doing this, it didn't take as much effort. It was so much easier. And then he was finding that he could bend and twist and move boxes in a way that he just never thought he could. So um, I think we can experiment and especially physios and OTs and you know, people who do do things with people, we can get them trying stuff out without us saying, oh, you don't need to worry about that core. You know, let them discover it for themselves. Because if they do want to hang on to the core strengthening idea and it doesn't affect how they move, then that's really cool. We don't need to change it. Let's do it. <laughs> so you're just letting them do the driving. And it's, it's harder work for us. We need to listen really, really well. We need to observe really well. Um, we need to reflect what we're seeing, what we're hearing which is harder than um, telling. But by the same token, it's like this almost magical opening and softening of our relationship with each other. Um, and we're not in, that, it's not in that fight, I'm telling you to do this, and they're saying, no, 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 I don't want to do it. It's like, oh, well, let's have a go. And, so, uh, yeah. and one of the, the concepts as well that you, you really um, are able to mesh so well with actors, motivational interviewing and that, idea that it's their intrinsic motivations and we're finding out their yeah. own reasons and there's yeah. I guess I, techniques that can overlap do you feel with with that um so so mi is resonates reasonably well they're not the same thing um motivational interviewing is a is a set of techniques um and it's whereas act as a whole um therapeutic framework so it's that, but there are similarities. We're still looking for what's important to the person. We're using loads of reflective listening and, and lo loads of the, um, you know, weighing up the good and the not so good about about things, and then handing it back to the person. Say, well, what do you think? What do you make of all of this? Um, but act is more is bigger. MI is a, a very nice, wonderful technique and fantastic to use and it changed my practice absolutely um but act is much bigger <laughs> it's hard to describe really but it is it's much bigger it's got more yeah. philosophy and, and sort of science and stuff in it and the the, the entire um yeah so it's an entire kind of paradigm shift as, as we talked about for clinicians and we can yeah. still have that kind of coaching guidance um, the interactor model within the act. Yeah. 
Yeah, act, act does not work if you tell people, you need to accept it. You know, you will get slapped and you probably deserve it. Exactly. No, it's about, you know, what, are you willing to have a go? I wonder, if, wonder what would happen if you tried this out. So it's kind of that curiosity-driven, um, inquisitive, playful, um, creative way of, of gently probing and helping people choose their next best step. So that it's not too big <laughs> and you're not trying to push them because as soon as you push, you'll get that push back. Yeah. And do you ever get the instances where people are perhaps not ready yet or not willing to dive into all these concepts because it's completely different to what they've experienced for 10 plus years in the medical system? How do you then approach yeah. that? Um, so some people are not ready and we can say, uh, you know, I don't think this is the right time for you, and that's okay. What I do, though, is bringing from motivational interviewing, I like to leave the door open. So right now you've got another priority, something else is really important to you, and it doesn't seem like this is the best timing for you. But when you're ready, come on back, and I'll, I'll be happy to work with you again. Um, or I might, somebody's got a concern about, say, an MRI finding or something, Let's go have a talk to the doctor together and we'll go through what it might be and then we can see what, what our next best step might be. So it's kind of partnering um, rather than dictating. Gotcha. So there's still that sense of hope that they can always choose later on down their journey, down their path when they are ready and we're giving them that power. Yeah, yeah. It really is affirming to the person um, that they're, it's their choice. And even in those that are mandated to come and see me from, say, ACC, has, our insurance company has said, right, you've got to see this person. Um, I'm still going to say, okay, so you have to be here because you, you know, it's part of your rehab plan. How can we make the most of the time that we've got together? Here are some things, and I usually give them like motivational interviewing suggests, this little menu of different things that we can look at. Um, do any of these sound interesting to you? What would you like to start with? And then if it really looks like it's the wrong timing, then I will say, I'll back you. And I'll say to ACC, your case manager, actually, now's not the best time. There are other things that are more important for this person. And I'm quite happy to be um, a bit obnoxious to the poor case manager and say, look, don't send me somebody who's waiting on their scan results to try and, you know, who hopes there's going to be surgery. Let's just hang fire because you're just spending money, good money after bad, really. Let's not do it. <laughs> Let's wait. That's it. Otherwise, it's going to be a fight and a struggle from the start. Yeah. And it's just not, it's just not worth it. Um, but I, most people will find that they, there's something that they want to go through. Um, I will do something around sleep. Usually, most people want to do something with their sleep. We'll do something around that, or we'll do something that just gives them a little something to walk away with. Finding what they are ready to do, and it might be not yeah. what you are generally do with with most patients and most clients. Yeah, yeah. And even if you know, if I'm thinking about the mindfulness thing, a lot of people have this idea that mindfulness is that sitting going on and, um, and sitting for 20 minutes or longer. And, you know, if you've got a really active bloke, I seem to have a lot of blokes in my practice, um, you know, build a chap who just does not do the sitting. It hates reading. It's not their favourite thing at all. Well, 
we can actually talk about fishing or well fishing's fantastic for mindfulness because you just you're not actually out there to catch a fish you're out there to stand there and toss a um, a lure out or something and it's just being immersed in the moment and so we can use that and we might go for a walk along the riverbank just so we can do that and a walking mindfulness or cycling is just as effective as doing a static one it's just bringing you into what's happening in your body without the judgment awesome there's so much gold. I'm literally writing a, piece, a page of notes myself, Ronnie. There was one, one last question that I, I would love to get your opinion and take on, which is in regards to flare-ups. So I, I know there's perhaps ways that people approach it that might be uh, kind of reinforcing the pain-centered approach. And I'm keen to, to hear your take. How do you, do you have a flare-up management plan? How do you approach flare-ups with patients? So flare-ups, well, I talk about setbacks. And setbacks are anything that takes you away from doing the things that you know help. Because normally it's a recipe of, you know, six, seven or eight or more things. So a flare-up is one of those setbacks. Other things that set you back is a time when you don't have any pain and you forget to do the things that help you not have pain. Or when you've got a holiday or you're under lockdown like we are at the moment. Um, and so I talk about being forewarned as forearmed. So if you know that you're likely to have a flare-up or a setback at some point, then preparing for it is a jolly good idea. And I've got two strategies. First is an immediate deal, deal with a flare-up. Uh, my body's going nuts. So that's about stop, breathe out, and say something calming to yourself. And I have a can cope card, which is like a business card size thing and we write things down on that and it sits in their wallet and they can drag it out when they want so stop breathe out something like take a chill pill or it's going to be okay or something um probably some stretching or a change of position probably a um you know the next step whatever go get a glass of water go out to the loos do a stretch something whatever um and then as you know as the flare up continues it might be calling somebody it might be saying seeking somebody else's help um, and so that's the immediate kind of can cope card and then we do sort of the anatomy of a flare-up which is usually um, that you you have forgotten to do the things that help you're in a high emotion setting so That'll be, you know, Christmas where the whole family's there and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Or at the moment where there's lots of anxiety, um, how do I deal with that? Um, and then that's about looking at what are my high-risk situations? When am I likely to forget to do the things that I know help me? Um, and that could be, um, like I say, Christmas or lockdown where the access to the things that really not you normally use can't be accessed. So what else could I do? So what other strategies? So for example, at the moment, we've been talking about um, movement or exercise and lockdown. What, what can you do? Well, I can help you with that. Yes, you can walk, but you can, there are loads of YouTube videos of people doing movements. There's You've probably got some gardening to do. You've probably got to mow the lawns. Um, you can probably do some high dusting. Just all those everyday kind of movements that are 
you can build into your day. Um, because when you when you have a flare up or a setback, you don't want to start um, pushing yourself too hard. You want to start at low intensity and then you want to build back up. But know that you can. You also don't want to stop everything. You just want to have pull back a little bit and then start doing some things again. And so having a range of different movement options is really useful. Range of ways of calming your body down is useful. Ways to connect with other people. And having lots of choices that you can employ gives you a chance to deal with that, um, that situation without losing the plot completely. Great. And we can help people prepare with strategies that work for them and they're prepared to do. That's really cool yep. that you, you got the immediate, like, um, you know, uh, plan in case. Yeah. Yep. And then you've got the, the long term. So they're looking at scenarios, context or triggers. I don't really yep. like that word, but scenarios that where they would um, need to prepare in advance and they know that they aren't around the resources that they're used to. And I write it down, we write it down together, we have it on a piece of paper so that people have got something written that sits on their fridge um, so that they know their high-risk situations. So when I was doing um, our three-week pain management program at, at the Burwood Pain Management Centre, we'd give them three weeks um, full-time, five days a week, and then they go away for six weeks. And in that six-week period, that's when things would fall over. Wheels would fall off completely. Come back on that last, we call it a completion day, where they could say, hey, these are the things I've carried on doing. These are the snags, the situations that didn't, where I didn't do it. What can I learn? And so we would structure that um, sort of setback planning around that period. So that, that was real to people. They got, the, they got the understanding about how and why I fell over. It wasn't that I was a bad person. It was these seemingly irrelevant decisions that I made that got me these choice points where I chose something that's going to take me away from being and doing the sorts of things that are going to help. That's just a chance to come back to those choice points again. Awesome. And using that reflection to get them to actively partake in that problem solving yep. themselves. Yeah, because we're trying to teach people how to do that for themselves rather than having to rely on us to rescue them. Because I love the people that I work with, but I really don't want to have a lifelong relationship with them. <laughs> That's it, the importance of self-management, mm -hmm. self-efficacy. Yeah, absolutely. Bronnie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I hope we catch you in our shores. You're, you're just near us, so you don't have too many excuses. I was going to, I had one planned, but, but then we got locked down. But yeah, we, we hope to um, come and do some more trainings over the next couple of, well, as soon as we're out of lockdown and we're allowed to visit, um, yeah, I hope to do some more stuff, but mainly on communication at graded exposure, that sort of stuff. Awesome. All the, the soft skills that are the best skills, the most important skills, right? hardest ones to learn the ones you learn in your first year of training and then you forget and then you use every single day <laughs> that's it Bronnie. if people were wanting to contact you or find out more about you where can we where um, can we find you on facebook Bronnie lennox thompson or oh, there's a, a lot of i've got quite a few friends i don't know that i'm at the the maximum but it's getting close um and my blog healthskills.co.nz 
um, on Twitter under Adamus Free. You'll have to write that out because nobody will know how to spell it. That's old. <laughs> um, and also on LinkedIn, just, yeah, you'll find me. I'm around. Awesome. And on the group. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bronnie. Hope you enjoy the rest yeah. of the, the long weekend. And Thank until you. next time. Bye. Oh, Easter Bunny is an essential worker, according to Jacinda, our PM. So I hope Easter Bunny visits. Thank you. <laughs> you <go. laughs> Fun fact. Thanks, Bronnie. Yeah, okay.